I think what we've done is we've been cutting edge and not bleeding edge in developing our concepts. Back to going deeper there in Watson. My guest today, Richard Goldman, is a prolific entrepreneur in the education space. He has had five different education companies get acquired, including two that sold for a total of more than $50 million. In today's conversation, we cover all those different businesses, how they build on one another, and the lessons and the timeless lessons that Richard has taken from those experiences and inform his latest venture. I aspire to a similar string of business success, and if you do too, then this will be a good one. Here is Richard Goldman. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Richard, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to be talking with you. Well, I'm glad to join Pittsburgh from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Yeah, you got the legacy there, uh, the connection to the University of Pittsburgh, just like I do. But one of the, the things that I'm just really excited to talk about with you is this arc of you know consecutive serialized entrepreneurial adventures that are all in uh, the, uh, one single domain. We've talked about it with all sorts of past guests. They kind of figure out their little corner of the universe, and then they just deepen and deepen and deepen their knowledge so they really have a, a huge competitive advantage. And yours seems to be in the space of education um, and, the, and the development of these different private schools that you've built over your career. Um, so maybe kind of before we talk about in the present, exceed. Uh, your current preparatory academy. Can you just do, give us kind of a quick, um, you know, ride around the globe, so to speak, of all the different uh, companies that you've started? In about 1984-85, I don't think you were born yet. Um, <laughs> my wife and I, she, we were both about 42, 43. She announced at dinner that she didn't want to work for anybody anymore. She wanted to start her own company. I said, well, what are you interested in? She said, my favorite job has been being a child care director of two preschools, one in Pittsburgh, one in uh, Akron, Ohio. I want to do my own school. So with three teenagers, all of whom were about to go to college and no money, we set out to develop a quality preschool that really didn't exist much of anywhere in the U.S., high-quality building that cost about a million and a quarter to build with teachers instead of uh, minimum wage uh, aides and a uh, focused curriculum. We grew that school, it was called Another Generation Preschools, from one school to six, uh, and when we sold it in 2006, uh, we had uh, 1,500 children that we were serving, and we were the 10th largest private provider of preschools in the country. And so when you start a company like that, you said it was a heck of a build out to, to create such a billion, I think you said over a million dollars, which even back then is even more money. It, was, to- it was a lot of money then, yes. 
So, so part of the basis for being able to do that was the fact that you had been the Dean of graduate education at Nova Southeastern university, but like, what, did you go and raise the capital for that? Did you go to the yeah. bank? Like where do you even find the money for that? Well, we started a group in 85 with these preschools that we've called the Goldman group, a group of about 10 uh, investors slash educators who uh, in 85 either lent us money at X percentage rate, they became our bankers, or put money in as equity owners in our preschools. So we raised um, basically about a half a million dollars, which was a lot of money in those days. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned to you, my wife and I had basically no money in the bank. We were about to have three children in college. And we developed this group that has basically stayed the same since 1985 to 2021. They keep investing in our projects for two reasons or three reasons. One is they're socially conscious and they like education. And two, every one of our entities has been profitable. So they've made money on it. That helps. That helps. So um, with our most current project, which we'll get into when you're ready for us to get into, we needed to raise $5 million. We did it in about 72 hours by just calling our friends, the Goldman Group, who've been with us for 35 years. Some of them didn't even ask what the project was. They just wanted to be in it. They knew our history. And I think that's one of the themes, perhaps, for our conversation, is um, having a pattern of quality and economic success led us to be able to raise money for our projects. Well, that's another part of it too, right? You're not just compounding your knowledge of the education sector. You're also compounding your network and your reputation. And if you have done the work to build a strong reputation and a connection uh, uh, with people that, you know, is, has its own depth to it, it makes those type of things a whole lot easier and, you know, saves you some time. 72 hours is nothing from a fundraising standpoint. I, I imagine some of the entrepreneurs I talked to here around Pittsburgh would be drooling at that type of scenario. Yes, yes. And you're right. Reputation is a key. And we've been honest in developing quality education. We've been honest in our finances. But our reputation might be even better than it deserves to be. As a friend of mine and a member of our group says, um, perception is reality. If people think you're competent and honest and successful, uh, they want to follow that. And that's led to our success. So let's hit a couple of these other schools real quick, and then we'll we'll go back to them. The Sagemont School, Smart Horizons Career Online High School, and the University of Miami Online High School. I didn't say those in the correct order, but those were your next subsequent education startups. So in 2007, uh, we, 2006, we sold our preschools. And uh, I'm sorry, 1996, I was off by a decade. We sold our preschools 
And with the money we made on the preschools, this is the beginning of us being social serial entrepreneurs. We took the money that we made and put it into our next project, which was the Sagemont School, a pre-K-12 brick and mortar school, private school that would be similar in Pittsburgh to Winchester or Ellis or Falk. Um, differences our, our school was uh, for profit. And we began the school in 2006 with about 30 children. And when we sold it in, in 1996 with about 30 children. And when we sold it in 2012, we had 815 children with uh, highly recognizable academic programs, art and cultural programs, and one of the best group of sports programs uh, in Florida high schools. Um, so we sold that school in uh, 2012 to the same group that bought our preschools in 1996. Overlapping with the Sagemont School in about 2004, um, my son, his name is Brent, who has been running our company since uh, uh, 1996, uh, had an athletic background. He played football at the College of William & Mary. And about 2002, 2003, um, he began to see that there was a great need for flexible education for world-class high school athletes and entertainers. So by a series of luck, and uh, I read Warren Buffett's biography, he kind of said that luck is created uh, rather than just being lucky, uh, we connected with the president of the University of Miami. And I proposed to her that we license the University of Miami name and partner with one of the first internet-based high schools in the country, which we called the University of Miami Online High School. And second piece of luck is, um, I cold called IMG, which is the biggest sports and cultural management company probably in the world, and proposed to them that we would service all their uh, teenage athletes and entertainers um, with schooling, which was very difficult for kids who had unusual practice hours, travel hours, travel days and weeks. So just to reiterate the point there, IMG is heavily involved in all like the top athletes that go into the draft and, you know, are either like taking some time off of school to prepare for the draft. It is IMG that is getting them ready to compete at the absolute highest echelons of sport. So, so just if you're not familiar with IMG, they are a player in a very, very big role. The, the player. Yeah. And basically, perhaps a lesson for your viewers is I made probably three dozen cold calls to 
different IMG personnel until I found the right person. And he said, well, it's a funny thing. I, I haven't been looking for you, but I found you. And we became the official school for the IMG athletes and entertainers. And IMG invested a million and a half dollars into our online high school. So again, I think an interesting picture is this mom and pop group, the Goldman Group, were able to partner with the University of Miami and with IMG, two national and international players. We also, uh, with the University of Miami Online High School, um, had as a goal to work with large corporations who had employees who had not finished high school. And again, I cold called Walmart, got into their HR department, and about three months after my initial call, got a call saying, we want you to be the University of Miami Online High School, uh, to be our uh, high school for our employees who don't have a high school diploma. Wow. And uh, an interesting side story, we get the contract from Walmart. It's about 150 pages long. And after 10 or 15 years, um, as I keep saying to our team, I'm an old fourth grade teacher. Uh, I got to be pretty competent in reading contracts. I went through the Walmart contract and redlined all the key points, gave my critique to our attorney who said, Richard, you did a great legal job going through the Walmart contract. He said, I have one question. Do you want to work with Walmart or don't you want to work with Walmart? <laughs> but I want to work with Walmart. He said, good, turn to page 150 and sign your name. Because <laughs> as you probably know, there's not a lot of... Uh, negotiations with, with Walmart. You but, need to know where the leverage is. Yes, yes. But I think a key point here is the little guys can work with the big guys if you have the right idea. And you can and the make, willingness to cold call. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and build the right uh, network. And as you said at the beginning, reputation starts to work. So if you can tell Walmart, oh, we're working with IMG and the University of Miami, they say, oh, to themselves, you're probably fairly legitimate. Let's continue a conversation. So we built the University of Miami Online High School to um, a few thousand students. And in uh, 2000, 12, 2007, excuse me, I have my chronology wrong. I get a call uh, and the guy said, my name's Jerry. I'm the attorney for the Washington Post and we wanna buy the University of Miami Online High School this week. Wow. I said, well, that's interesting. I'm the chairman of the board. I didn't realize we were for sale. 
He said, well, after our team comes down, this was Monday, they came down on a Friday. I can guarantee you, you'll be for sale. And by Friday, we made a deal with the Washington Post. They bought the University of Miami Online High School and also an online curriculum company that we developed called Virtual Sage. They bought both companies and we closed within 45 days and sold the University of Miami Online High School uh, to the Washington Post. So in an instance like that, where someone comes with such confidence, you know, by the end of the week or, you know, by the time I'm done talking to you, you're going to want to buy as an outsider. I can't help but think they just knocked your socks off from a monetary offer standpoint that you're like, well, we'd be uh, you're basically negligent to not take this given the fact that we have investors and shareholders and what have you. Is it, well, what, what more is that's what I told the attorney from uh, the Washington Post is as chairman of the board, I have an obligation to our board that, you know, any conversation like this, I can't make the decision on my own. It has to go to the board. Now, this is very, very unusual that typically we've made four or five sales with our companies. It can take from six months to a year and a half to, to get the deal together and to uh, consummate it. Uh, but what, what happened with the Washington Post was uh, a, a bit serendipitous and uh, it, it did move very quickly, fortunately for us and for them. So let's, we've gotten back to the president, uh, to the present just about, um, and, and your, your most recent project, Exceed Preparatory Academy, to me seems very similar, at least in kind of its, its bones, to the University of Miami Online High School, in that you are catering to young people that are living uh, lives that are not abiding by conventional geolocations, schedules because of their connection to either athletics or entertainment or something like that. And we live in a world where there's more and more opportunities for young people to uh, kind of take divergent paths in those different arenas. And one of the things that I had just so happened to have seen was uh, one of the new upstart sports media companies over time is launching their own high school league, which is a way for um, these kind of theoretically top basketball prospects, even before they could potentially go to college or participate in a professional league to make some money playing um, in a kind of semi-professional capacity. Uh, But, you know, given that the fact they'd be under 18, they'd still need an education to some degree. Exceed is kind of being built or has been built to tailor to that type of need. Uh, And you may be aware that Exceed Preparatory Academy, which I'll describe in some detail, because it's, you made a good point. It's similar to the University of Miami Online High School and different. Uh, We are the official school for overtime elite. Right. And and I can get into that in in a couple of moments. You made the comment, um, about the University of Miami Online High School and Exceed, uh, they have similarities in that they offer flexibility for the learners that 
many of the students that we have are athletes and entertainers. We are working with sports academies, but the education models between the University of Miami Online and Exceed uh, do have differences. With Exceed uh, Preparatory Academy, um, it fits into a, a label called a micro school that uses a hybrid approach. So what is micro and what's hybrid? Um, what we decided is that we were going to build brick and mortar schools. The Sagemont School, for example, was close to 200,000 square feet. The exceed brick and mortar schools are between three and 5,000 square feet that we put in class A office buildings and sports academies. Uh, and we limit enrollments between 75 and 100 kids. So we, with Exceed, we have a brick and mortar environment. We have live teachers and we have content that is online content. So the students uh, have a school type environment, but our Exceed environment looks more like a Microsoft Office or Google Office than it does uh, the, the private or public schools that we all went to. And because the content's online, the kids have flexible schedules. They can do their academic work at Exceed. They can do their academic work at home. And if they're athletes and entertainers because the content's online, if they're traveling for tennis matches or uh, their performers, they can take the content with them and, co and contact the teachers at, at any time. Now, what this does, this brick and mortar design, what it does among other things is it allows international students to attend the Exceed Preparatory Academy with a uh, visa through a government organization called SEVIS, S-E-V-I-S, where we can issue I-20 student visas to students anywhere in the world who can come study at an Exceed Prep site. So what this does for the sports academies, we're at a large sports academy in Daytona Beach, Florida called DME Academy at uh, a hockey academy in Des Moines, Iowa called Oxmoor and Overtime Elite, the professional high school um, league where we're the school, we're able to uh, support these sports academies and bringing in international kids. For example, at the DME Academy, they have somewhere between 35 and 40 kids from around the world. If they didn't have the I-20 visas that we can give, none of these students could come to uh, study through their whole high school career and with the DMA Academy to uh, develop their, their sports uh, competencies. So 
in starting five different schools like this, it seems like you've had a pretty high success rate on the schools that you have attempted. There's this other kind of form of entrepreneurship that's like the MVP, minimum viable product, get some like half working piece of software out the door and see if people pay for it. You can't quite do that with a education concept evidenced by the first, one of the first ones you did had a million dollar building um, uh, that, that was a part of like, even just getting the thing off the ground so that the students could show up somewhere. And obviously, obviously it's a little different with an online system, but what's fascinating to me and what I'd love some insights on is how you can, to what do you attribute being able to go in repeatedly and find the market for the school that you're building, find the capacity to scale, like all of these, you know, we started with 30, we ended up with 8,000 or whatever, like crazy growth rates you're able to hit with these schools. To what do you attribute your ability to do this with such consistency? I think what we've done is we've been cutting edge and not bleeding edge in developing our concepts. Uh, for example, with the preschools, let's say there were very few or no real quality preschools in Florida or any place in the country, we knew there was a need there. Women started to go back to school. Uh, we focused on professional women that could afford our uh, tuition and that this was a group we predicted would be willing to pay for a quality education. Um, we, with the University of Miami Online High School in 2002, that was really kind of the beginning of the internet world. You know, if you ask a typical parent, would you like your kid to attend school on the internet? They weren't even really aware what the internet was, let alone how you could go to school on the internet. So while I said we tried to be cutting edge rather than bleeding edge, with the University of Miami Online High School, we were kind of bleeding edge. I think by being able to partner with the University of Miami with an iconic name, it allowed us to get faster acceptance than we would have um, otherwise. And that was also after the dot-com bubble. So it's not like you were starting that in 98 when there was just a pure frenzy for anything internet related. It had at least, you know, leveled out a little bit. But there wasn't much education via sure. the internet at that time. So we were, uh, we were kind of pioneers when the University of Miami Online High School got accredited their eight regional, now six regional accrediting groups, uh, the group we worked with, the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, had no criteria for accrediting online schools. We were the first online school that they accredited. So we helped them to come up with rubrics, criteria, uh, methodologies for uh, accrediting schools. So we became kind of a guinea pig uh, for them. And as the years went on with our various schools, all of which were uh, accredited by the same organization, even though it evolved in names over the, 
in its name over the years, we developed reputation within the accrediting group of creating quality. So that's, you know, I think one of the patterns that I'm trying to share with you and your viewers is that if you can build trust, whether it's with lenders, with bankers, with accrediting agencies. So if I called our accrediting agency today, and they probably handle, I don't know, five, 8,000 schools and ask for the CEO and tell them who I am, he knows who I am because of the unusual cutting edge history we've had. And um, they've never had a complaint over the 20, 25 years that our various schools have, have been accredited. So they will bend over backwards within their rules to, to help us with the accreditation process. Can you just break down the accreditation process a little bit more? Because we don't always have that from an education standpoint. And just in the spectrum of companies we cover, you have one end of the spectrum where it's something more of like the Wild West. There's not a lot of regulatory bodies or regulation generally. And then yeah. the other end of the spectrum, you have like medicine and financial services that is probably at the higher end of the spectrum. seems like education is so closer to the middle, maybe a little bit on the high end, but what's your well, general yeah, it's, perspective it's, on that? It's, it's toward the high end. For example, uh, University in Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon are accredited by one of the regional federally approved accrediting agencies. I believe there are now six of these regional accrediting agencies. We've worked with one of them being in uh, South Florida over almost 30 years. And it's a very rigorous process to get accredited. Uh, typically, you have to be in operation for a year. You have to do a self-study. A team then comes and visits the schools with a serious list of uh, uh, criteria that they look at. And after the visit, which is at the end of a year and a half to two and a half year process, you're informed whether or not you've been accredited. I think Pitt is either going through or about to finish the accreditation. And I saw something online where one of the top leaders at Pitt said, you know, what a hard process it has been. And that's the same exact process that we go through. So when parents asked about accreditation, we're able to say, we're accredited, you know, being in the South uh, by the same group that accredits the University of Texas, University of Miami, University of Florida. So people begin to understand that this is pretty serious stuff. And if we don't have accreditation with our schools, then we can't get the uh, government I-20 visas because accreditation opens the door for visas. It also opens the door, since we cater to athletes uh, so much, in order to get NCAA approval for our courses, uh, we have to be accredited. So there's, there's a whole series of benchmarks and hurdles that we have to go through. So the accreditation process is uh, uh, a fairly rigorous uh, and 
extremely important process. And from a financial perspective, if any one of our schools wasn't approved, uh, we would be out of business. It's a very serious uh, issue for the operation of the school. So it also seems like um, from a scaling standpoint or, or just like a career arc standpoint, you have kind of moved from a more B2C model of getting you know moms and dads to bring their kids to preschool, uh, bringing their kids to the Sagemont School, a private institution, to more of a B2B model where you're partnering with the university, you're partnering with you know, McDonald's and Hilton and Walmart to educate their employees. And in this case with Exceed, partnering with uh, the academies to do the education for these characters. Yeah. What's led to that transition? I mean, I, my guess is it's B2B sales is easier than consumer sales. The fickle yeah. consumer is a little bit more difficult, but what, tell me more about that. Well, if we, I have no idea what the data are, but uh, you know, you're based in Pittsburgh said the University of Pittsburgh or Duquesne or Carnegie Mellon, they're probably paying, investing $500 to $1,500 per student that they recruit into the university because it's a a B2C model, a a business-to-client model. With the B2B, uh, and you hit it right on the head, for example, the Sports Academy Uh, that we're working with in Daytona, they have 115 kids in our school. Well, in essence, we didn't have to pay any marketing dollars on those 115. Now we have a a joint venture process with the academies where we uh, share revenue and other expenses. But from a marketing perspective, you're right. We, other than having a quality school, having accreditation, being able to issue um, the student visa I-20s. We've done all the hard educational work, but our partners do the marketing and the recruitment. So um, we're spending, we're still working on a B2C model. Uh, We're spending 10 to $15,000 a month on Google, it's a lot less expensive to spend nothing on Google and get 115 students. So the B2B model is one that we're heavily pursuing. Uh, And as you mentioned, the overtime elite, the high school professional league, uh, we're the official high school for uh, OTE as they name themselves. And, and really, you know, in a similar sense, cold calling for individual students, while it may be able to work and is one of those things you might do in the earliest days when you, you haven't yet built the capacity to scale yet, is not really a scalable model from that acquisition standpoint. But if you can cold call your way into a contract with Walmart or McDonald's, then that's more than worth however many calls you said it took to fit, find the right person, 12 or you know 24 different people that you had to dial up. Yeah, with the school that we developed that we haven't talked about, uh, Smart Horizons Career Online Education, which is an online school for adults. There are 40 million American adults who lack a high school diploma. 
we're doing B2B with Walmart, with McDonald's, with Hilton, with about 150 public libraries. And yes, they, they do the, the marketing and recruiting. And it's a, it, it allows us to spend more time on education and less time on marketing between not having to spend the Google dollars or having call centers. So I want to make sure I got this right. So, so there's six companies so far in the education space? That we've created? Yeah. Yeah, we created Let me just go through quickly. Another generation preschools, University of Miami Online High School, our curriculum company, Virtual Sage, our pre-K-12 school, the Sagemont School, the high school for adults who don't have a diploma, Smart Horizons is five, and Exceed Preparatory Academy, our micro-hybrid schools would be six. And all of these are still running in some capacity. A majority of them you've sold your ownership right. stake in. Do you know approximately when or after which sale your personal life, yours, your wife, your parents of three kids, at what point you were, I would call it a post-economic decision maker. There might be charitable giving you want to do, there might be stuff, but you know, your mortgage, your your livelihood, your your well-being for the remainder of your life stopped being a, a like a, a maybe a stressful consideration. Right. Basically, um, we sold the uh, University of Miami Online High School in 2007 and the Sagemont School in 2012. Well, I can't tell you what each one sold for, but I'll tell you collectively, because of still non-disclosure kinds of things, that those two sales were $51 million. Now, that didn't go into my wife's pocket and my pocket. We had a series of 10 investors, we had some debt, but we had a group of investors who were very happy with what came out of the, the sales. And we could have easily stopped after that. But one of the members of this Goldman group came up with the idea for Smart Horizons, the online school for adults. And then my son came up with the idea of uh, exceed preparatory academy. So every time I would tell my wife, this is it, we're finished. A week later, I would come back and say, well, we're not exactly finished. So, uh, but right now, exceed is where we're putting all of our effort. And uh, my wife and I are inching towards being 80 years old. Uh, our son, who I still think is our baby, is 53, so he still has a lot of energy left. But I'm, I'm having fun as a board member and kind of an advisor, um, and I'm spending probably 10 hours a week on the projects, but I don't have to open the schools, close the schools, uh, 
deal with the parents, et cetera. We have a staff that does that. I get to do know all the, the, the fun stuff. So that would have been a time that we could have uh, said this is it. And that's when we made, um, uh, you may have read, we made a gift to the University of Pittsburgh after the sale of the uh, Sagemont School, uh, we made a substantial gift to Pitt to endow the Dean's Chair in the School of Education. Yeah, so, so the, the reason for my question, you did, you did a beautiful job leading kind of already into what I wanted to ask, but I'm, I'm always curious to understand uh, an entrepreneur's motivations and how that changes and waxes and wanes yeah. and, and, and alters itself because you know, as a, as a, as a 30, uh, almost 30 year old. Um, and I shared mm-hmm. on our, our preparatory call that, uh, my wife and I just had our first kid, you know, I definitely feel the like, man, the bills, the expenses are climbing as opposed to falling. And, uh, so there is, there is a, a perhaps existential nature to some of the kind of motivation behind my own entrepreneurial endeavors and so on and so forth. And, you know, the, the other part of what leads many people down in entrepreneurial careers to some degree, uh, very much what your, your wife said at the, at the beginning of your journey, which is, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I want to do this. Maybe I need to do this. And so it's just, it's interesting, uh, you know, given the string of successes that you've tied together and the fact that you have persisted in starting educational ventures past the point of making it purely on an economic sense. Not that I don't think it was ever an economic sense, but that you needed to have that consideration. It's just a very interesting no, I, part of I the human experience. It's a, it's a form of uh, positive dope. It, yeah. it helps society. It doesn't hurt your body. Yeah. Uh, let me give you a quick analogy. Many years ago, I saw Truman Capote interviewed on television and he had just produced a movie from one of his books. And the interviewer said, well, how was the movie? Did you see the final version? He said, no, it never crossed my mind. I'm on to the next project. And that's the way the entrepreneurial mind works. It's the process is the dope and the stimulation and the fun and getting it off the ground. And the next bit of fun is doing the next project. Uh, and I think that's the difference between, you know, an entrepreneur and a business person. You know, I could have a very successful haberdashery store and it can make millions of dollars. But if I have that one store that's successful, I'm a business person. If I'm an entrepreneur, I'm thinking, how could I scale this thing? Whether it's another brick and mortars through the internet, uh, through partnering with Walmart, that, that's how the entrepreneurial mind works. And it, it is interesting, you know, we're all junkies for something, right? And it, it is interesting that that itch or that kind of um, addiction doesn't necessarily go away at, at some point in time. I think that there may be times where my wife actually wishes for that to some degree. Yeah. Um, but you know that if you if you kind of have that nose for it, it's not gonna just up and leave. Yeah. So it 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 takes a different mindset. You know, our society needs 
the assistant principal in a school who has the position for 30 years, who brings stability to the school and to the neighborhood. I understand that mentality. And I also understand the mentality of, you know, how could I replicate the school and do it throughout my city, throughout the country, throughout the world, and, and make this a, a scalable game changer kind of, uh, uh, of business. And that's what, again, what an entrepreneur does, I believe. So we've led up perfectly to the question that I, I, I really wanted to kind of aim towards wrapping up with, which is, you've created a whole bunch of schools. You've created schools for um, adults. You've uh, created preschools. You've created schools for athletes, private schools. Um, if you were creating a school for entrepreneurs, uh, <laughs> what would it need to have? How would you, you know, from the, from first principles, what would you go about doing if you were creating a school for entrepreneurs? That's a, that's a good uh, question. Maybe the whole idea of a school with a rigid framework wouldn't work real well with entrepreneurs where they don't want to be in the box. They want to be outside the box. So then the question is, how do you give them support? Now, so you could have a school without walls where maybe it's a mentorship type model where successful entrepreneurs can help young prospective entrepreneurs to scale their idea, their product, uh, et cetera. Uh, one of the things I find in helping younger people who have ideas who want to scale it is to not say, oh my goodness, that, that really isn't going to work. You know, to put the a kind of a conservative kibosh on somebody's really good idea. Because if somebody had done that to us, going back to our preschool saying, no, you're going to build a million and a half dollar preschool, which today would probably be the equivalent of about $10 million. I, I would then be saying to the mentee, oh, don't do it. But you can't do that to entrepreneurs. You have to lend them away that, yeah, no, yeah, you're, you're trying to raise a lot of money. You're trying to change the paradigm of how schooling is done or how uh, retail is done. I think the school just has to help people navigate the barriers because there are a thousand barriers. One of the members of our Goldman group is a, friend I grew up with since age eight. And he has a cliche that a successful entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial activity is as strong as the weakest link. So for example, of our schools, we raised the money, we built the buildings, we hired the staff, we have great curriculum, and we don't get accredited, we lose that $5 million investment. You know, it's the weakest link. I was working on a project that I cannot tell you who the players were. I didn't own it, but I was kind of the network person bringing three education entities together that 
could have been a billion dollar SMB deal. And it got not to the 23rd or 24th hour, probably to the 19th or 20th hour. But we hit that cliche that my partner brought up that this deal was as strong as the weakest link. And the weakest, the link said, no, I'm not going to do it. And that was the end of the deal. Now, with an entrepreneur, I mean, a billion dollars is a lot of money. I would have made a couple dollars and plus. But when that happens, you're kind of pissed off for about 30 seconds and you go on to the next project. You can't focus on what didn't work. You have to focus on, geez, where can I take my, my next idea? Amen to that. Um, Richard, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you giving so much time to me today to, to talk about all your accomplishments. Um, I, I prepped you with the standard last two questions. We're about to do that. But before them, uh, was there anything else you're just hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? I think I, I want to give you a compliment, Aaron. Uh, your viewers may not know this is the first time we've met one another. Uh, you're a very good interviewer, and uh, I think you kept us, both of us, focused. So uh, I don't think I have anything more to add to that. So we can go to your questions if you'd like. Wonderful. Well, uh, I, it's easy to interview when you're genuinely curious about uh, what people are up to. And it's, it's a fascinating career arc and a, a, a impressive, staggering streak of successes uh, that I'm sure is not yet over. So um, want people to check out what you're working on now, uh, give them the digital coordinates where they can learn more about you, about your companies. Where do you want to direct people? The, our current project is the Exceed XCEED Preparatory Academy. And the website is exceedprep.org. I think that would be uh, a good place to go. And um, the University of Pittsburgh has a couple bios on my wife and me summarizing the projects we work with. So if you went uh, probably to Richard Goldman, comma, University of Pittsburgh, you may come up with a couple articles that uh, may summarize or perhaps may be helpful to the, uh, uh, to the viewer. And I think, let me just make one comment about the uh, gift we made to Pitt. My wife and I concluded that we owe, we were, we've been lucky. We've made a lot of luck and we've been lucky in the success that we had. And we felt that we have an obligation to continue to improve our society. And we decided to make a substantial gift to the School of Education at Pitt where my wife and I both got started, uh, she in 1963 and me in 1964 in our long journey in education. And uh, we feel that it's an obligation for entrepreneurs who have been a bit successful uh, to give back to the community. So we, we gave a, 
a substantial part of our earnings over the years uh, back to bid. And it's something that we're very proud of. Beautiful. Is that where you guys met? Pardon me? Is that where you guys met? No, we met at Taylor Alderdice High School in oh, 1958 in 11th grade. We were 15 years old and we're both going to be 79. So it was just a couple of years ago. Amazing. Well, there should be a whole other podcast down the road where you teach me some stuff about uh, marriage because that's a, an equally <laughs> uh, staggering accomplishment to have made it so long. So credit to you guys, um, credit to all your success, and we will link to all the stuff that you referenced there. Uh, but Richard, before we sign off and I let you go, I'd like you to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Yeah, I think um, if we look at the attributes of entrepreneurs, I can think of two things I want to share. One is persistence. Uh, you know, I gave a few examples of the cold calls I made to IMG and the University of Miami, literally dozens of calls and emails and trying to network and find people who knew people. Uh, and two, uh, and this is how my wife describes me, is once you have a focus, put blinders on. Just stay with the, the goal that you have. And you're gonna have bumps, all kinds of bumps but just find solutions for them and keep the blinders on, uh, aiming your eyes towards the, the goal. Beautiful. That is uh, timeless advice and uh, well-founded. Uh, Richard, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Thanks for including me. Bye-bye. We just went deep with Richard Goldman. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Richard. If you enjoyed this and love the idea of getting really deep domain expertise, coming back to the well in that industry and finding more and more business success, then you simply must listen to our past interview with Jason Wolf, who did the same thing in the gift card sector. After one successful startup, he did another and another and another, deepening his expertise and getting bigger results as he went linked it in the show notes, check it out and hit subscribe because we've got another great interview coming next week. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.